Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So now we come to step six, uh, which is to restructure my life uh, to rely on the gospel. Yet, uh, in here, uh, this is probably what you were wanting when you came. Like, this is where we finally get practical. Uh, Hopefully everything we've talked about up until this point has been practical. uh, But here's the way I would describe, if you take step six, Without steps one through five, I think we have a word for that. It's cliche. It's the good things that we know we're supposed to do that just don't have a nice context, and you go, oh, great, that's what's supposed to fix my problem. Mm. Um, it, hopefully the journey that we have taken places us in a much better position spiritually, relationally, emotionally, uh, in terms of self-awareness, to be able to take these things that cliches get to be cliches because they're true. If they were dumb, they wouldn't make it to cliche. In some sense, to call something a cliche is a compliment to the content that's in it. Um, Now, another part of step six, just to give you a frame of reference for it, we're going to set, set step six up much more as something that we are running to than something we are running from. That, that to this point, we've been looking at what is bad and destructive and how do we get away from it. So if we're playing the game of chase, we're looking back. Here, we're going to begin to turn our focus forward and we're going to have some things that we are running to. And, and so our, our goal here is not just to say, be nice. Because if our remedy for anger is some generic form of be nice, then all of the alternatives that we see by being angry are just going to seem so much more practical than the alternative that we're putting out there. So I've given you several other kind of lists. Here I give you another list of like 30 plus verbs and adjectives for what the alternative to anger looks like. And again, which of these fit you best is really going to be contingent about which ones of the other lists that we've given you fit best. But if you're asking the question, what would, it, what would it look like for me to begin to run to? What would my life, what would be the characteristics of it? These are the kinds of things. And I ask you this question, and it comes across as a total Jesus juke question. I don't mean it that way. When you look at this list, is Christ's likeness beautiful to you? Do you look at the things here and do you see that as a win? Is that appealing? Is that attractive? Is that who you want to be? Because if the answer is no, I think we have to go back to steps three and four. 
and say, what is it that's ruling my heart in such a way that I don't like these things and that I find the alternative to these things more attractive than Christ and the gospel? If we're at the point where we're like, yes, this is, this is what I want, then we're ready to move into step six. And we're going to look at step six in three sections, and they're sequential. Uh, contentment, self-control, and problem-solving. And, and so each one is kind of required to go to the next. And so what are some of the things that, that we would begin to restructure our life around if we were aiming for contentment? One is we would live more simply. Uh, contentment is not complex. Uh, when we live in the margins of our life, uh, we're usually going to struggle with something like anger. And so one reality is we're not going to do everything else in our life the same and do anger differently. We're going to probably have to simplify some things in our life. Uh, realistic expectations. Uh, you know, one of the monikers for ruling desire is expectations. And as we strive for contentment, we don't strive for contentment in a perfect world. And so whatever it is that we're expecting of ourselves and others is going to have to be able to withstand failure and disappointment. Or else it's just an impractical ideal. Uh, and so this is where maybe one of the things that you do is you look to make a, a disappointment response plan. That in those moments when something lets me down, when it gets on my nerves, what is my emotional fire drill? I mean, we had those as kids, and in school you would do fire drill, and uh, I grew up, there was a fault line near where we were in Kentucky, so we had to do earthquake drills. And it was just that moment that when something went rut row wrong, you wanted to know what it is you were going to do in that moment. And, and so if there's a spot where my anger gets hot fast, and it does that with, um, with disappointments, what is that response plan going to be? you knowing the context of what those disappointments are going to help you put that together, I will tell you one of the first things that has to go on the list. Self-awareness. That's why we spent as much time as we did in steps one, two, and three. I have to recognize that what I'm doing in this moment is anger. Because in my mind, it's helpful. Yet, I have to be able to say, no, this is destructive. It is counterproductive. Uh, and so whatever the, in order to enact the disappointment response plan, we have to have the self-awareness to say this is what's going on. Uh, keep no records of wrongs. Uh, contentment doesn't have a scoreboard. Um, you know, one of the ways that you can tell the depth of bitterness is the degree of detail with which you remember an offense. I mean, think about it. How do you remember things? You review them. Okay? If, if you try to recall something that happened seven years ago and you haven't thought about it, how much retrieval work do you have to do? 
I mean, you're trying to think of what was going on, who was there. I mean, you're trying to build as many associations as you can. If you're trying to remember something that you've replayed in your mind a lot, then the details are much more vivid. Well, a key factor in bitterness, which is an expression of anger, is repetition. And so the more details we remember, uh, it shows the the more this is ingrained. Uh, And so... Uh, If we say, well, I can tell, that's a struggle for me. What do I do? Uh, Sometimes we have to go backwards in order to go forward. And so there, uh, make a list. What are the things that I'm having a hard time forgetting? That I need to deal with in a more constructive way. And then in a time of peace... Not in a time that is reactionary, that would very much resemble the kind of confession we did at the end of step five. Go to the people involved in those situations and say, I've had a very hard time letting go of this. And I'm not coming to address it with you. I am coming to disclose that because it's something that I haven't been able to deal with unspoken. And I... Anything that we can talk about that is fruitful, I want to do that. And then once you've done what can be done fruitfully, then this becomes your danger zone thinking. It, um, it um, next area here, limit interactions with angry and discontented people. It... If you're around people who struggle with anger and discontentment, you're going to learn the language of anger and discontentment. How do you learn the language of sports? You're around sports people. How do you learn the language of accounting? You're around accounting people. Uh, How do you learn the language, reinforcing it at a deeper level, of anger and contentment? You're around anger and discontented people. Uh, Both Old Testament and New Testament, Proverbs and 1 Corinthians says that bad company corrupts good morals. Yet, if we're saying this is an area of struggle that I have, then the percentage of time that I spend in relationship with people who struggle in this same way needs to narrow. Especially if it's people who aren't owning it and dealing with it. You know, if I'm in a group of people like G4 and saying, hey, we struggle with this together and we are working, that's a totally different animal uh, than those who feel good about it and they're a connoisseur of how the kind of cutting comments they can make. And then uh, live beyond the moment. Uh, Sinful anger rarely makes sense when we think about what we want in life instead of what we want in the moment. So the the thing that comes to mind there, uh, I remember being a young kid. Uh, I grew up on a farm in western Kentucky, and there was a point where uh, my dad was having a moment. Uh, And it was one of those moments that made a whole lot of sense to him, and I didn't really know what I was a part of. But he brought us up on a hill. And he looked out, and there was a lot of land out here. And he said, you see the land from that creek over to the tree line? Yeah. Your granddaddy bought that land. You see that land over here from the road uh, over to the railroad tracks? Mm -hmm. Your great-granddaddy bought that land. Okay? You see that land in the middle? 
we just bought that land. And it, he was trying to make me a part of something bigger than the moment. And there was this sense of like lineage and farm and this whole lesson. They make more of everything, but they don't make more land. And I'm just going, Dad, you're talking with a creepy voice. Um, it, but there was something larger than the moment that I couldn't quite get my mind around. What anger does is it makes our world incredibly small. The only thing that matters is this thing that ticks me off right now and needs to be better in this moment. My world is this big. Whenever our world can get a little bit bigger, our anger doesn't make sense anymore. And so maybe we, we create a timeline. And we look back at earlier seasons of life at the things that we thought were just going to make life great. And usually we look back at those things and we shake our head and we go, oh, you know, we were young and dumb. Um, and, and we look ahead and we say, what is it that I want my legacy to be? And we say, I, I want to manage my disappointments in that direction. And I recognize that lots of things that have been important to me, they kind of come and go. But whatever that thing is that's going to be the legacy that I want my life to be remembered by and invested in, I'm going to manage my disappointments in that direction. So that's contentment. Uh, self-control. Uh, one part of self-control is just to slow down. Anger is a very rushed emotion. Uh, I mean, if, if somebody is anger, angry and methodical, it's creepy. I mean, at this point, we're like, this is evil. Uh, anger is just kind of rushed and fast. So a couple of things that sounds like take a deep breath and go to your happy place, but hear me out, that's not what I'm saying. Um, sit down, uh, if at all possible. Um, it takes several deep breaths. Now, counselors are very prone to say those things, but they do not teach the biology behind them. And so we get labeled as quack jobs. It's okay. We can admit that, okay? It, here's the biology behind things like this. When you're upset, your fight or flight response is like right on the brink anyway. When your major muscle groups get to moving, uh, your quads and your biceps and your chest and your back, because you're slamming a door, you're just... It... You're calling your body to produce more energy. And, and your body's on the brink of doing that anyway. And, and so as you begin to move those big muscles in your body, whether you've got big muscles or not, but you know what I'm talking about, it, you're calling on adrenaline. And when you're already wrestling with anger, adrenaline is not your friend. Okay? When you take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth, what you're doing is you're taking the cooler air that is less than 98.6. You're bringing that over the nasal cavity. Then the air goes in. It heats up to 98.6. It comes out through your mouth, bypassing your nasal cavity. Why in the world is that important? Because in the quirky way that God made our bodies, one of the areas that the body monitors to determine whether it's safe or in danger is the nasal cavity. 
And when the nasal, nasal cavity is cool, the body assumes life is good. When the nasal cavity gets hot, the body assumes there's a problem and it turns on the adrenal system again. And if you think about that, if you're running from a bear, uh, you're going to be using lots of energy, you're going to need lots of oxygen, all the breathing comes through here, it's bypassing here, that's a sign we need adrenaline boost, and we try to get away from the bear. It, the, those kinds of deep breaths, it's not as if you are sucking all the adrenaline out of your body. It's much more like taking your foot off the gas than it is putting it on the brake. Now, if you say, does this really make that big a deal? I'm going to do one of those little kind of wraparound illustrations here for a moment just to try to convince you that it does make a big deal. Okay? So, not trying to make a big deal out of cigarettes here, but if we're smoking a cigarette, what is the chemical agent in cigarette? Nicotine. Okay? What family of drugs does nicotine fit into? Stimulant. Most people who smoke cigarettes smoke cigarettes because they think it helps them relax. Now that doesn't make sense. You don't use a stimulant to relax. You use a stimulant because you want to fill up. There's other things that you shouldn't use if you want to relax. But here's the deal. Long, slow, rhythmic breathing is more relaxing than nicotine as a stimulant is stimulating. And so the physical effect, in that sense, most people aren't addicted to cigarettes, they're addicted to breathing. It, don't go cold turkey on breathing, that's bad. Um, it, but... Uh, at this point, if you're just going, I don't feel any better, uh, you're missing the point. What we're trying to do is place ourselves in a better position. So if we can sit down, take a couple of deep breaths, because we are more committed to self-control and honoring Christ than we are winning and remedying this fast, we've made huge strides. Uh, represent others accurately. A primary way that we can love and honor people is to accurately represent what they say in tone and content. You know, in this sense, anger often makes a mess of our ears before it makes a mess of our tongue. You get what I'm saying there? That when we're angry, I'm going to hear everything that you say with the worst possible interpretation. And then what spews out of my mouth is just built on the distortion of the way that I misrepresented what you said. Um, now, in light of that, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, in a passage that would come to mind there is Matthew 5, where it says to love our enemies. Uh, and we go, I don't like that, and I, I get it. But let's think about it for a moment. When we're good and ticked off, basically everybody around us is an enemy, Right? Which means at that moment, if we don't love our enemies, we ain't loving nobody but ourselves. And so this aspect of, yes, this isn't Jesus saying, you know, you've got to leap the Grand Canyon kind of level of spiritual maturity when I say love your enemies. 
when we're mad, that's all we've got to love. And it may be the smallest step of heroic faith to say, I'm going to represent you in what you're saying accurately. Um, restate with humility. Uh, don't confuse understanding with agreeing. And this is hard. <laughs> it's just one of those things that, that when we're in a conversation and you say something that I don't like, Maybe I just think I don't like it, and if I understood it better, I would like it, but right now I don't like it. I've got a choice. I'm either going to try to represent what you said accurately, which is going to give you the misinterpretation that I agree with you, or I'm going to start to destroy what you said from the very beginning and I can win. That's the choice. Uh, and what we're saying is that to represent somebody accurately is not necessarily to agree with them, but we need to take that risk that they may think that we agree with them before we do rather than take the risk to destroy them and sin against them uh, from the jump. And that's part of spiritual maturity. Weigh your words. Uh, Matthew 12 Jesus said we're going to give account for every careless word that we speak. And that is an incredibly sobering passage. We're, we're not going to get to heaven and go, I didn't mean all that. Uh, he's going to say it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And that those, those aren't things that we can excuse away. Now problem solving. This is where everything that we're talking about here is probably the least novel. Uh, and this topic here should get its own presentation. Uh, we'll be doing a seminar later on communication. You can go to bradhamburg.com slash GCM communication. Uh, there's material here that will go into these kinds of things in much greater detail. Um, but making I statements instead of you statements. Now, don't get all mechanical on me. Okay, there are people that I have sat down with and they've talked with a counselor and it's like this principle right here is the magic bullet and it is like talking to a machine. Uh, and there, I, 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 uh, yes, you, um, and, and it's just stuck. But let me give you an example. I'm going to give you two statements that are for all intents and purposes the exact same statement and you tell me which is more receivable I want to spend more time with you you're never at home the same statement yet if what we are wanting is to present what is ailing us in a way that it is receivable and to be able to respond to that's a way we can do it uh, choose the time and place wisely. Yet, you know, how many times I hear a couple that just gets in a rotten place because they try to take a 30-minute conversation and cram it in a three-minute window. Again, I told you I'm from a farm in Kentucky. And if you've got a water hose and water is coming out of the hose and you put your thumb and constrict the area for the water to come out, what's going to happen? It's going to spew and everybody's going to get wet. Okay, if you've got 30 minutes worth of conversation that tries to happen and you've got a three-minute window and you try to put it in there, what's going to happen? 
It's going to spew everywhere and it's going to feel nasty. And so choosing time and place. This is where sometimes having a preset place. Like if you say, this is something I've struggled with a good bit. Yet, maybe if it's in a home context, you would say, can, can we just name the living room and the love seat as a place that I can invite you to go when I feel like this conversation is going to be hard for me? And you know when I invite you there, I'm aware this is hard and I'm trying. Maybe if it's in the workplace and you tend to lose it in your office because that's your power chamber and that kind of thing, and it's happened too many times, you say, hey, can we go to this generic conference room and have this conversation? And, and you're giving a preset place that says, I'm aware and I'm trying. And it gives hope to everybody involved. If it's a family relationship, maintaining physical touch can be a big difference. That... This is not the time for like marriage cuddle kind of flirty thing. But when your nonverbals can say, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm relaxed, I'm rubbing your leg, I'm not pinching you, um, it, we can begin to have nonverbal communication be an asset instead of a liability. Uh, attack the problem, not the person. Um, you know, one of the indicators of sinful anger is just enemy confusion. Um, you know, be aware of when you begin to exaggerate. Uh, one of the ways that I say this is emotion, anger is an emotion that has a lot of gravity. Uh, in education circles, this is called situational learning. Uh, but uh, the, the example of that that makes the most sense to me Again, being a farm boy from Kentucky, uh, there were long days in the spring when it was planting season uh, where you would get up at sunrise uh, and would be in my John Deere 44 track, 4440 tractor and would drive down a long row. And for variety, I would turn around and drive the other way down the row and would just do that all day, get a 15-minute break for a sandwich just because the crops had to go on the ground. And you're doing that all day. You're in the tractor, and you start thinking about somebody that said something you didn't like. And you think about what you did said, and then what you wanted to say, what they would have said, what you would have liked to say. Uh, and, and pretty soon, by the time you get to the end of the day and you get out of the tractor, you're not a fit human being to do life with. You are angry and foul at everybody and everything. Because anger has this kind of gravity. When you're upset, you can think of anything that violated and upset and disappointed and hurt you in any possible way. And it's like a black hole. It, and at that point, we're just, we're attacking everything. But whatever it was, there was that little conversation that went wrong that needed to be clarified or addressed or you hurt my feelings when and it has become this huge matter yet and then a final phrase here that's more of a concept than a tactic but the constructive displeasure of mercy this is david pallison's attempt to give us vocabulary for beautiful anger 
Because he basically says, look, all of us have seen anger done wrong and done anger wrong enough ourselves that beautiful anger is probably just not going to cut it. We need a different set of words. So his set of words is constructive displeasure of mercy. Uh, displeasure meaning problem solving begins with acknowledging a problem. Uh, and we can't believe in real goodness and truth in a fallen world and only experience pleasant emotions. I mean, David Pollison would say, the wise and foolish are distinguished by how they get angry, not if they get angry. Jesus didn't live a calm life. He cared too much. And so there's going to be things that elicit a displeasure in us. And there's nothing wrong with that. We live in a broken world where things need to be right and we need to advocate for those and we're called to be salt and light. And that means where there's death and decay, it should bother us and upset us and we should point it out. And part of anger's good, profitable, redemptive value is it calls us to action when things are wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But it needs to be constructive. Because unless our anger is constructive, it only contributes to the wrongness it's trying to reconcile. And that's a whole lot of what we've been talking about here. Uh, of mercy. Uh, and again, this is one of those statements that I agree with, but I don't like. There is no way that we will be released from a life-dominating struggle with anger and insist on justice. You know, our choice will be between justice with continued anger and mercy with peace. Uh, now, what that looks like in various situations, that's where we're getting situationally specific enough uh, that a guy talking from a stage is not going to give the level of detail uh, that we would need for that. But to wrap up what we're looking for in this step, I want to take us uh, to what is probably the classic anger, um, anger excuse, anger defense passage. Like when we get angry, there is one sweet spot that we can go to and Jesus be on our team. And that's Jesus clearing the temple. And, and when we think about that passage, I mean, Jesus is coming in and he has got a whip and he is throwing tables. His muscles are flexing to where the, they're ripping through the shirt. His eyes has turned green. He is staring people down and they are shrinking as he does. And it's just like, if Jesus ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And we miss in that passage one of the details that if we see it, we can no longer use it as the anger defense passage that we have been very prone to. If you look at verse 14, it says, In the midst of everything that was going on, the blind and the lame came to him. That in our mind, when Jesus was his out of control angriest, the weakest and most vulnerable felt incredibly safe in his presence and felt drawn to him. And what we are after is that the, the ones who are, who are truly being hurt and when things are really going wrong, those who need to be righted, we should seem as very safe people. If not, then that's not the kind of anger that we're doing because that anger really is beautiful. 